0: The Road to Moscow by Robert Swipe, part five. 1975, Wednesday, 16th of April, 1975. England five, Cyprus nil. England always lets you down in the end, and just to make things worse, it sometimes gives you hope. A five nil thrashing of Cyprus at Wembley, and I'm allowed my birthday present early, so I watch it in my replica kit. Malcolm Macdonald scores all the goals in an otherwise routine route. It won't last. We fail to qualify for Argentina 1978. Within a year, the kit's outgrown. The school team has a good run that year, though. We either reach a semi-final or are in contention for the league. But in the season's crucial game at Fortescue against local rivals Stanley Road, we taste defeat. A midfield masterclass from William Rees, who turn up again at Orlean School. Ends our season there and then. Rees's heroics apart, my only other re- recollection of the game is our coach, Mr Saunders, Edward VIII, stood at the touchline, barking encouragement, propping up a piece of card on which he daubed the legend, the Trafalgar steamroller rolls on. A reference, no doubt, to our Arsenal-like ability to grind out boring 1-0 wins without playing particularly well. He always seemed to be smoking a pipe, even, although this is possibly a trick of the memory, in class, where in between puffs he'd fill up what, what felt like several hours with enthusiastic accounts of the repulsion of the Spanish Armada. I imagine that he liked to drink as well as puffing on that pipe, and if my memory serves, he died while I was still at Trafalgar, not that long after the game with Stanley Road, eaten up by the brown residue of tar that caked his teeth. Gary Mills, next to me in the team photo, is also a smoker. I see him taking crafty puffs from the cup of his palm on his way home from school to Felton. His parents are separated and he's a crazy mixed-up ball of confusion. In one fit of rage he attacks the nun who takes our class on placement from the local Catholic college, St Mary's. He's one of those who will either turn out as a star or a crook. Has that wayward intelligence you need, the the sort that's only really tolerated in the worlds of crime, entertainment and elite sport. Or he might be a dustman, for all I know. He goes out for an Italian meal with Patricia Larrigan on her birthday. I've been in love with her since we were five, kissing her on the crown of her head in infant school, causing her to flee the room in floods of tears. An early lesson in the terrifying and volatile power of love. Sean Whitehead has a similarly similar surly wiriness to Gary, Gary Mills. His father owned a building firm, I believe, and had a nice big house not far from us. But Sean speaks what my mother called Twickenham Cockney. I think she meant by it something along the lines of posh boys talking common. Mark Jenkinson wrote a play. I know that much. It's called *The Art of Random Whistling*, and was first performed at the Young Vic in 1996. William Rees lives in North Wales, from whence he sells second-hand books on the net. "'I still love playing and watching football. I'm rather more accomplished at the latter,' he says on his friend's reunited blurb. "'I'm very glad to hear it, Bill.' Mr Embling is the headmaster. He's kindly and patrician. Mr Edwards is his second-in-command and is one of the two exceptional teachers into whose orbit I'm fortunate to fall.' He's dapper, stern on the surface, but deep down, just as kind. I love watching him eat his lunch behind his desk, the same precisely performed ritual every day, an apple sliced, then segmented, the knife steered by a firm and steady thumb, popped straight into the mouth as sliced, apple alternating with a wedge of crumbly cheddar. It's down to him that I win one of the three prizes the school awards to its soon-to-be alumni. With the book tokens, I buy a copy of The Wind in the Willows, and they stick a commemorative inside the cover. I don't remember many games between now and the World Cup, although I'm sure I watch a lot. West Ham win the cup final, Leeds lose the European Cup. The following year I win my prize. Concord takes its inaugural flight. Southampton beat Manchester United in the FA Cup. The Czechs beat the Germans in a penalty shootout to become champions of Europe. So you see, there was hope. Lots of hope back then. Before England Let Us Down. 1977-78 Sunday 11th of June 1978 Scotland 3, Holland 2 My memory is telling me that I watched this game with Bill Sewell on a Friday night, sometime in June 1978. I scream out in joy when Archie Gemmill scores to put the Scots three-one up, giving them one foot in the second group stage. And Bill looks up from what he's doing and says something laconic like, "Someone scored then? I take it." That's what my memory, my mind, my brain is telling me about that day in June, just under thirty years ago. But it can't have happened like that. It was played on a Sunday for a start, and now I find an article saying that Bill died in 1977 which would have made it very hard for us to watch the game together. How did people write biographies of the long dead before Google? I can't even manage to keep track of my own life, and I'm still alive and have the added benefit of being able to search the net. But even with those supposed uh, advantages, I've still very nearly started out on a completely fabricated jaunt down a non-existent memory lane. Telling stories is telling lies, it seems, even when you're convinced that you are telling the truth. So where did that memory come from? And where did I actually watch the game? I'm lost in time now. Bill's death was the first that really intruded on the innocence of youth. I saw Rufus when he'd just been told about the death of his father. It's a cliché, I know, but the only thing I can liken his face to is thunder, or rather the dark, brooding clouds that accompany a storm. The news came with all the disruptive force of a rotten tree trunk thrown violently into a pond by a bored child, a peaceful idyll shattered on a capricious idle whim. I thought I knew where I was with it, but that day has floated free of its moorings now, belonging to another year, another me entirely, one that I now find I'm in the process of forgetting. We'd visit Bill at his studio come home, which was in a muse just off Wardour Street in Soho. The three of us, Casper, Rufus and me. Bill was a very laid-back figure, quite unlike the other dads you'd come across. This I do remember. I was very struck by the fact that he was wearing kickers, the hyper-cool French boots with those creamy, corrugated soles. They must have been a fairly recent style back then, in what I'd thought was 1978, but must have been at least a year before... A handsome man in his fifties, luxuriously paunching out and with a whitening fifties beatnik beard, Bill had hit upon a tremendously cunning means of keeping these three demanding kids out of his hair when they came to stay. Here's a fiver, now bugger off to McDonald's, he'd rasp in a smoky Australian. And so he would. It's hard to convey how exciting and otherworldly those McDonald's were to kids our age when they first arrived on British shores. The milkshakes meant an Eternity of numb-cheeked sucking, the frozen cement inside the beaker never seeming to go down, no matter how much effort you put in. And Bill was the magician who had conjured all this magic up for us, this brilliant, vivid world, a new and seedy London with its enormous caverns filled with LPs, balconies of playful, leering whores, and cabbage-leaf-strewn markets for us to amble around, three princes in our Soho emirate. I came across an interview with Rufus when I was trying to get my dates straight. His remarks about his slightly at-arms length, every-other-weekend relationship with his father, are pretty perceptive. It gave me this really bizarre idea, he says, of what makes someone cool, not really trying, but always having the potential to be fantastic. That catches Bill pretty well, I think. He had that, and his two sons have both inherited it from their dad, for sure the potential to be for fantastic. So where are we in time and what do I believe? Google or my own in the doghouse memory? Well, before I surf I'll try to piece together what I can remember of those fabulous holiday-like weekends. I'm pretty sure that the whole of SoHo was covered at some point with posters for an Ian Dury single, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, which seems most likely and also is ringing a louder bell than the other options. Would place us in late summer, nineteen seventy-seven. Water waste was out in early April of the following year, so that's unlikely unless the web is wrong about the year of Bill's death. Then there's the story Casper always tells about the Elvis mirror Bill sent them a week before Elvis died. On opening it, they found that its glass had, with eerie prescience, been shattered while in transit by some supernatural force. That would also place the summer in the summer of seventy-seven. I'm sure Caspar always makes a mental connection with this, feeling that the Mirror's calamity and Elvis' death were both in some way tied up with losing Bill. But whether that's through their proximity or symmetry, I'm not sure. But that feels a while before I first went up with them to visit Bill. This might all seem completely irrelevant, and besides, I could resolve it all by picking up the phone, I know, but I need to get my head around it, try to set my own version straight. For what could be worse than losing your own past? Increasingly you become aware that it's about the only thing you have, your sole protection against the welter of information you're bombarded with day by day, the sheer immensity of stuff that's happened, the unceasing jabber of the ticker tape, your mind a fizzing seltzer glass of comment and opinion, your own past, that internal timeline of responses and observations, of upraised thumbs and screwed up noses, that is you, all the rest is propaganda. And in the same way, when we go, we're not really what we leave behind officially. If you want to know about Bill, for instance, this is all you'll get that's remotely worth knowing by searching on the web. He was the bohemian animator, father of Caspar and Rufus, who left Australia to visit the home of his idol, the poet Dylan Thomas. He made the following animated films... Redemption of the Retainer, 1961, The Apple, 1962, Mr. Know-How in All-Round Comfort, 1963, The First Adventures of Thud and Blunder, 1964, Thud and Blunder in Haulage Hazards, 1964, Handling Materials with Thud and Blunder, 1966, Canada is My Piano, 1967, The Chair, 1967, Tidy, Why, 1967, this was nominated for a BAFTA in 19- His best-known work is probably the Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds sequence from the animated Beatles feature Yellow Submarine. It was an innovative application of the retroscoping technique in which the animation is traced over live-action film. The Beatles clip grew out of a longer piece Bill was working on, based on footage of Fred and Ginger that was going to be called Half in Love with Fred Astaire. Frustrated that his original work had been compromised for inclusion in the Beatles film, Bill left the project going to work for the Canadian Film Board. There's probably more, but that is only a little part of Bill. He's in a million memories, and this is where the sad part is. You see, when we lose the memories, it's as if we've lost that person all over again. We think of time as something that unfolds consecutively, and it, It does, but that's not how we remember things. It's less an arrow in our memory and more a marble rattling around a wooden box, spinning through a maze of chambers, until its momentum tires and the rolling ends. Somewhere in time I did watch Archie Gemmell nimbly weave through the despairing dives of the Dutch defence, square up to the desperate keeper's lunge and clip the ball beyond him in an arc as calm and certain as the trajectory of time. And now I see as clearly... Casper, Rufus, me, scurrying and larking as we hoof a ball about on a park in Hampton Hill. It's the day before the final, one the Dutch again will lose, an evening sky is forming, and Bill is somewhere else. 1894. Saturday, 14th of April, 1894. Arsenal Mill, Burton Swift's 2. An interesting year, 1894. W.K. Dixon received a patent for motion picture film on 7th, 7th January. In February, French anarchist Marshall Bourdan was foiled in his attempt to blow up the Royal Greenwich Observatory. The following month, fires destroyed over a thousand buildings in Shanghai. 71 years before I'd be born, Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev laid prior claim to my birthday on 17th of April. May day saw riots in, of all places, Cleveland, Ohio. French president Sadi Carnot was assassinated on June 24th. In September, 12,000 New York City tailors went on strike over the sweatshop conditions in which they were expected to work. The inventor of the saxophone, Adolf Sax, died. Bessie Smith was born, and on a spring Saturday, Woolwich Arsenal ended their first season in the Football League, Division Two with a home defeat to Burton Swifts. They finished ninth, twenty two points behind second division champions Liverpool, who'd beaten the Reds, as they were then known, five nil at the manor ground and two nil at Anfield. Quite a year. But the, mom- the most momentous thing that happened in that year, at least as far as my family history is concerned, isn't to be found in the Football League handbook or entered on Wikipedia. My great grandfather, Charles William Knight, was born in Woolwich. I like to think that at some point he might have joined the steadily growing swell of spectators who would watch the forefathers of the current side, then called Royal, later Woolwich, Arsenal, play on Plumstead Common or at the Manor Ground, close to the Royal Arsenal itself from which the football club grew. A Scotsman, David Dankin, was the prime force behind the establishment of the first Arsenal side. Little more than a works team, this group of players had named themselves Dial Square after one of the Royal Arsenal's workshops, situated between Woolwich and Plumstead. Buoyed, no doubt, by a 6 nil demolition of Eastern Wanderers in their first ever game on 11th December 1886, two weeks later, on Christmas Day, they changed the name to the far grander Royal Arsenal. I wonder, did he ever see them play? By my reckoning there would have been eight years between the formation of the club and the earliest time my great-grandfather might have made the move from Woolwich. At some point Charles joined the Queen's Own Royal West Kent Regiment and that step would lead him to Ulster where the fortunes of his family and that of the Crawfords would meet. At some time in 1894 the 1st Battalion of the Royal West Kents was sent to Enniskillin County Fermanagh in pre-Partition Island. I can't say for sure that Charles William Knight was sent on that initial dispatch but even if he wasn't that's certainly where he ended up. That's where my grandfather Robert George was born at New Row in Enniskillen on 27th June 1908. Charles had obviously liked Enniskillen enough to stay or had had no option to leave. I have a feeling it was the former. Another Charles, his grandson, my uncle, told me recently that Charles William Knight had joined the Enniskillen Rifles, as my uncle described them, when he retired as a regular with the West Kents. Perhaps he'd found it hard to give up the life of a soldier. I believe he'd made it to at least the rank of captain, sometime around the period of the Great War. I can't be sure it's my great-grandfather Charles, but the CWR Knight was awarded the Military Cross between 1914-18 and held that rank at the time of the award. It's just that rogue R that makes me doubt it. It doesn't show up anywhere else, but everything else fits. Whether those Enniskillen Rifles are the same as the famous Fusiliers who fought in the Boer and Great Wars, I'm not sure. It looks that the 1st Battalion spent World War I stationed in Dublin. I'm pretty sure that was the battalion with which Charles would have gone over to Ireland in or after 1894. It's a gut feeling, but I think the averages also suggest that you had a better chance of living to a pensionable age and seeing your son get married, as he did, serving in Dublin, than on the Western Front. My hunch is that if he carried on soldiering after retirement, it would have been with the emergent Ulster Volunteer Force or one of the quasi-militia that appear to have been quite legal, providing you could find a judge sympathetic or more honestly, unionist, enough to enable you and your mates to parade and drill your arms, publicly, provocatively. Or possibly he just kept a rifle handy in case of emergencies. Whatever the case, and regardless of whether he ever got to see the team that grew up in his hometown just as he was leaving it, great grandar Charlie was, I'm sure, a gunner all his life. But then, maybe it wasn't the guns and the authority and the adventure, Perhaps it was the lure of Enniskillen itself. I've never been there, but I've seen enough of Ulster to know how entrancing that combination of glistening lock and dark, smouldering land can be. The light lasering through the trees and blazing onto those vast steel sheets of water. Enniskillen is Inis in the original Irish. It means Kathleen's Island. And it is an island, of sorts, situated, as it is, between the two lakes that make up Loch Earn. Enniskilling or Inneskeflin. I prefer both of those to the grimly appropriate Inniskilling. I imagine that if Charles Knight had indeed set off there in 1894, it would have been a tense garrison town he'd have been confronted with. The previous year had seen the collapse of the second Home Rule Bill... Horace Curzon Plunkett's Irish Agricultural Organisation Society had been formed the same year that the West Kents arrived. The non-violent pressure for some redress for the historical debt accruing to the iniquities begun with Cromwell's plantations appearing increasingly unanswerable and yet remaining unanswered. It would have been a strange time, a sort of Cold War-style prelude to the Easter Rising and the Civil War and all the time the country's natural beauty standing there before the participants as a rebuke to the divisions and suspicions and mistrust that carried on patiently brewing, mounting daily, biding their time, waiting to explode. So maybe that's why this London boy stayed, the country, Kathleen's island, had its talons in him. Or perhaps it's even simpler than that, not a Kathleen, but a Catherine. I can't be certain of the particulars beyond the facts in my hand. Charles and Catherine Knight had a son, Robert George, my grandfather, on 27th June 1908. Word would have been sent back to the Knights in England, no doubt. Perhaps a few pints were downed in celebration at the Royal Oak, the pub where on that Christmas day in 1886 Royal Arsenal was toasted by the players from Dial Square. Toast or two, perhaps, raised to their own, the Queen's own, West Kent, the, the loyal gunner all those miles away over the water. They'd say, God bless the protector, keep the faith, as they clink their glasses. Keep the faith, defender of the faith. But then, maybe they'd all have met up already for the wedding. I think I have a year, sometime in 1904. Did they ever make the trip to Enniskillen, those crusading nights? It's hard to pin it down, because several Catherine Roonies, who show up on the 1901 censuses residing in Fermanagh, could have been his Catherine, my great-grandmother. But I think I've narrowed it down to one who was 25 in 1901, of perfect marrying age in 1904, 28, and ripe to bear a son in another four. She lived and was married in Lisnaskia, in the parish of Agalurcha, and that's also a place with our family's ties. So I'm pretty sure that I've seen my great-grandmother on that list, and that she was a lass from Lisnaskea, and I feel I know her a bit better, despite knowing nothing, really, about her at all. But even if I'm wrong and she came from somewhere else, Ard Money, Crummer, Derry Gannon, Derry nice, she shares one thing with all those other Catherine Roonies, something else that doesn't quite fit. Because, whatever else she may have been, the woman that this defender of the faith ancestor of mine married and settled down with was not a Protestant. Scrolling down the third column in the list of results, two letters bind all these disparate Catherine Roonies, whether from Grignafine, Drumcully, or Ed- Curra, into a cessorial regiment of their own. R.C., 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 if Charles Knight stayed in Ulster for the love of a woman, it must have been of the powerful and overwhelming kind. Because unless she evaded the census or came out of the sky like a bolt from the blue, one thing is for sure, my great-grandmother was almost certainly a Catholic. Thursday, September 20th, 2007 You Give Me Hope and Consolation Wednesday 19th, September 2007, Arsenal 3, Sevilla 0. I meet Dermot and his eldest boy at half-time in the concourse. We're 1-0 up after a tight and technical 45. It's the first time I've felt really at home at the Emirates. I barely register the shiny spaceship tonight as I head towards the turnstiles and soak up the familiar Arsenal feel of the walk from pub to ground. It helps too when you can pick out a familiar face or two among the 59,000-plus who've turned out for tonight's game. Dermot and Son are visible down and to my left, chins resting on wrists as they slouch over the edge of the upper tier. 59,000. That's well over half as many again as turned out for Chelsea's game at Stamford Bridge last night. They'll say, well, it was only Rosenborg, and they'd be right only Rosenborg, ranked 80th in UEFA's meticulously compiled, and meaningless as it turns out, league table of coefficients, whatever they may be. But perhaps the Blues might have managed better than a 1-0 draw in front of a full house. Or maybe they just need a bit of the King down the King's road. Dermot's a huge Elvis fan, so the first thing he asks is, do they play the wonder of you every game? they have done this season. Elvis's glitzy 70's classic is the club's choice to perform the same function as Liverpool's anthem You'll Never Walk Alone. It seems a pretty canny choice.
1: When no one else can understand me When everything I do is wrong You give me hope and consolation You give me strength to carry on Fairly
0: standard stuff until you listen to it, as I can't help but do as an apology not from a husband to a taken for granted spouse but from the club to us, the supporters It's quite a nice tongue-in-cheek confession to all they put us through knowing we'll come back in our droves week after week, season after season It couldn't really be more apt
1: And you're always there to lend a hand everything I do As a wonder, a wonder of you
0: It's nice to have our efforts acknowledged, although we don't so much lend a hand as bail them out with a small fortune. Well, at least it's better than Clarence Frogman Henry's I don't know why I love you, but I do. And like the game itself, it has just enough grandeur and pomp to outweigh its own cheesiness. And when you smile
1: the world is brighter You touch my hand and I'm a king Your kiss to me is worth a fortune your love for me Is everything You can't beat a good Sing-song before the game
0: The crowd turned choir, welcoming their team Putting the fear up their Adversaries, supporters joined As one in the communion of song I guess I'll
1: never Know The reason why You love me Like you Do The wonder of you
0: All in all it's the perfect anthem for the club An inspired and inspiring choice So it's a bit of a shame that no one can be bothered to sing along I take my seat for the second half Arsenal maintain their first half edge But it's still a tight and tense game Fabregas, the boy who can't stop scoring Gave us the lead half an hour in, his potent but misplaced shot, finding the net with the aid of a heavy deflection. Four curvaceously-nosed Persian youngsters file past on the way to their seats at the very back of the upper tier. They look like young Arab princes. Who knows, Their mustard-laced, drooping in a tube, hot dogs notwithstanding. Perhaps that's what they are. This is the Emirates, after all. But the young princes scampering about on the park below are its real emirs. They withstand late pressure from a tidy, skilful severe side, and although two further goals slightly exaggerate the true extent of their dominion, this is still a very big win and pretty much the perfect start to the group stage of the Champions League, a confident stride down the road to Moscow. You look for moments of clarity in games like this, incidents that stand out from the whirling frenzy of passing and movement. One such comes two minutes into stoppage time, with the game already won. The ball breaks loose in midfield, and no less than three Arsenal players make for it as if their lives depend on it. Possession secured, the move begins that ends with Eduardo scoring the third goal of the game. One that has all the hallmarks of the classic Arsenal we thought we'd lost. One touch, Kleb, Fabregas, Eduardo, goal. The post-match huddle bubbles ever more exuberantly players running at the heaving thicket of red and white and leaping through the air, tickling onto the top of the group hug. They look as if they are and as if they feel as light as air, bundling on top of one another like that, kids in the playground. And so they should. Who would want to keep the feet of these young princes on the ground? Dermot drops me off in Chiswick. I'm waiting for the bus on the high road when a beautifully spoken Indian accent says quietly, "'Good result tonight?' did you go?' I ask, before I notice the red-currant gunner's scarf "'that's protecting this elegant young Brahmin's neck from the elements. "'Fabrigas makes it look so effortless, doesn't he?' he purrs. "'I get the 391 to to Richmond. "'The driver looks as if he's driven here directly from the mosque at Finsbury Park. "'He has a long, straggly, ash-white beard with no moustache. "'Good result!' he says. "'Who scored?' I tell him who scored, and pray see the game for him as he pulls out behind the bus in front, enjoying what appears to me his disproportionate pleasure at being told the bald facts of the match. So, the night brings a king, four Arab princes, and a Brahmin, and fifty-nine thousand delirious emirs, all filled with wonder tonight. Now, this morning comes the news of an event, the shock waves of which will rumble on along the king's road for a while yet. Chelsea have lost their Caesar, he came, he saw, he conquered, but if, but even a Caesar is no match for an oligarch, there is only room for one special one it seems, and money doesn't talk.